host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Thomas Drans. Tom, what's going on, man? It's good to have you back Hi, in town. Yeah, no, it's nice to nice to be back. It was a, it was a fun road trip through New York. A New York road trip as a beat writer covering a West Coast team is the creme de la creme, because you get three games, six days, don't have to fly. Unreal. But then my travel day got super difficult because, uh, yeah, storms in the Northeast were, uh, were complicated. But, yeah, a lot of, uh, a lot of fun. Great to be back in Vancouver with uh, with the bad weather chasing me. Apparently, yeah, you're a, you're a vet at this point. I hope our uh, our pal Harmon Dial isn't listening because you very strategically pick your dates in terms of where you're trying to go and who you're trying to see. So, um, you're back. So, okay, so you were on this grueling road trip, right? It was a seven gamer for mm-hmm. the Vancouver Canucks. You caught the meat of it, the, yep. the five in between, yeah, and it was by all accounts a smash success for them, right? They bank eleven out of fourteen possible points. But those five games you saw in particular were the five outright W's they got. And yeah. in that, I would posit that those three games in the New York area in particular were maybe the three most impressive team performances they've had this season. They certainly had a few games, particularly early in the year at home, where they kind of ran up the score on yep. opponents. I think of the Blues game, for example. That and, uh, there's been out. a few others. The game in Nashville, there, uh, some of the games against the Oilers. But yeah, I mean, those three for me were the first time personally – I looked at this team and thought, I can see it. I could see this team playing deep into the spring. Well, the game against the Devils, they outshoot them 42-25. The game against the Islanders, 34-20. And the one in MSG against the Rangers, for a while there, they sort of went like full sicko globetrotters on them, right, with the back-to-back goals by Pedersen and Hoglander. Yeah. And and that's what I sort of mean by stacking together performances. It went beyond the scoreboard, although mm-hmm. that was obviously impressive itself, but just in terms of the actual under them. Yeah. It did represent, I think, the upward trajectory that I that the optimists in us hope to see as the season went along. Yeah, the you know you, you go back now and look at, for example, their performance on this road trip and some of the underlying stuff in terms of what they're doing, especially adjusted for score, is now fifty-seven percent. Like the sort of thing where if that's maintained, if that's not just a blip, you know, you could see this team having the true talent level of like a hundred and five point team. Which is which is a level that I haven't sort of been at. How I rate this club, just not just based off of my priors, but based off of what we've seen, like the way they were winning games earlier in the year, where you know you you had like a six week stretch where their goaltending was completely nuclear, and you know their power play was putting in a goal or two a night, and then you had this stretch where they kind of limped along at five hundred for about you know fifteen games. And and really, it was their defense that was carrying them, and you could sort of start to see the seams where, oh, can this club get enough uh, offense five-on-five, five, especially if they're not regularly controlling play with their top six on the ice. And then you had this stretch where the third line carried them offensively, and, and now, you know, you're seeing not a, not a team where it's like you've got some auxiliary engines running and it, it, they're strong enough, like you have enough outs that you're sort of able to win despite okay five-on-five form now you're seeing oh this might be a real engine like this this team might have a real you know centrifuge that's going at a high clip and and if that's the case if that's maintained if if this sort of trend we've seen from the Canucks over the last 10 is sustained the next 10 and then the next 10 I you know I I think you're looking at a team that you know if they're not a fringe contender they might they might be an outright one well, and part of why I wanted to have you in to talk about this today, and, and we had sort of coordinated this, and then you wrote an accompanying column at The mm-hmm. Athletic about it, it's become, 
I'm not sure how to rate it because on the one hand, being here in this market, I feel like we're sort of privy to the conversation on a day-to-day basis and you obviously cover the team. Inundated. And so it's not something that is sneaking up on you because I think people here, whether it's covering the team or whether it's fans of the team or people working for the team are obviously a lot of what happens this season. There's this backdrop of Elias Pettersson's upcoming RFA status this summer. He's got the one year left and then it's sort of this crossroads of what's going to happen long-term with him with their best player. But nationally, it, it understandably has sort of taken a back seat, right? Yeah. But now I think as the season goes along, it's going to be something that you're going to see more sort of stories or quotes coming out, especially as the Canucks visit certain towns and the reporters are asked about <laughs> it, right? Like it feels like that's going to gain some traction. Sure. And so... Although, man, he is as sick as he is at stick handling in space. He is so good. Even better at evading he's the been, questions? He's been so good at evading this. Like in New York... The Swedish media, like there's a lot of Swedish media there, yep. um, and they were asking him about it in a language I couldn't understand, and uh, they told me, that, you know, afterwards, he was like, well, you'll know about it when it's done. Like, he was, yeah. like, very much stunting on the fact that he was giving nothing away, and and that's part of this, right? why it hasn't been a big national, a big story of national interest is there's been no fuel. This is a vacuum story. There, There's not a ton of intel to, to really fill the gap with. And, and so I think you get the occasional, you know, plugged in podcast rumor. You get the occasional um, bit of speculation. What, what we have seen now, I think, are the stakes alter, right? Because this team is now looking far more legit than anyone thought they might five, six months ago. I also think you've seen management begin to wear some more of their impatience on their sleeve. Mm. And, in, and in fact, in some ways, it seems like try to turn up the heat to stimulate discussions in, in the public sphere. Despite that, day-to-day in this market, it's a talking point. It's a, it's a matter of anxiety for Canucks fans, but it categorically is not a distraction. It's categorically not something that Pedersen is being asked about with any regularity. And it, it's not something, obviously, that's getting in the way of his individual or this team's team-level performance, and I think that's permitted it to remain in the back seat to some extent. Well, so this road trip coincided with them reuniting the lotto line, right? Mm-hmm. Bumping Pedersen to the wing. I know you took some issue with framing it or labeling well, it as a lotto line because it wasn't we, its we, natural I don't want to belabor the point, but just remember, like, for me, <laughs> I'm an attendance taker at, at, like, practice and games. Right. So if you have a nickname for a line, but it, but it actually needs to be clarified with an additional detail. Right, because that's for, not the way they're slotting in. For me, that's not useful. Right. So that's that's partly why my, my um, bias... Sh- that's where my bias shows. Like, I just have a different need for a, for a line shorthand than your average hockey fan. Well, regardless of the semantics, yeah. it coincided with him going absolutely nuclear, right? In particular, oh, yeah. that he had that four-point game cap with the overtime winner in Pittsburgh. A silly goal against both the Rangers and the Islanders. Really showed off and, and flexed all of the, all of the skill and, and everything that we've come to yep. expect from him, right? And I, I think it would have... I think it was sort of naturally going to happen regardless because after a really hot start to the year where pretty much everyone at the top of this team's depth chart was just piling up and stacking up ridiculous point totals, right? There was a relatively pedestrian, by his lofty standards, 15 to 20 game stretch there, right? Where mm-hmm. the points kind of cooled off a little bit. The performance took a step back. Now, he ripped off this tear and all of a sudden he's right back near the top of the st- leaderboard in 5-on-5 points, yep. goals, assists, raw points. He's, he's on pace anything. for his second consecutive 100-point season as a 25-year-old center. Well, he's I taken mean, even a step further, right? Because yeah. I think last year he had, what, 39 goals and like 103 points or something, yeah. and now he's at 42 and 108-point pace, right? Yeah. So 
silly stuff. The reason why I'm framing it this way, though, is because I've always thought of him in these past however many years, just watching him closer. I've always thought of him as a guy who relishes a bigger stage and like the spotlight, not mm-hmm. in like a selfish, egotistical way, but someone who like, wants that opportunity, right, to play meaningful, important games where everyone's watching and everyone's talking about it. And that's kind of what's made the the way this organization sort of fumbled the bag around him for a couple of years now and his own wrist injuries along the way certainly derailed him a little bit. But that's what made it so tragic, right? Where it's like mm-hmm. we saw a glimpse of that in the bubble for those 15 or so playoff games. Yep. And it was a sight to behold. And in particular, there were a few games there. I remember, was it game one against Vegas? Yes. Where they, they kind of got dunked on a little bit. And, and Vegas was sort of taking some liberties with the, with the trash talk and yep. with trying to be physical with him. And then he just came back in game two and just absolutely just lit them on fire. Yeah. And they wound up losing that series. But like that's always what I had in the back of my mind with this guy in terms of like big game player will thrive on this stage. And then so he goes out east for this road trip through New York. And I don't think it was an accident that he just not only produced the way he did, but like the flair of some of the goals he scored as well. The, it was the a very show. Like yeah. he put on a show. He did. He really just, did. And yeah. I don't think that was an accident, certainly. Um so seeing that from him now, and then I think with the team performing the way it has, where they're only percentage points behind the Winnipeg Jets now for first in the West. Yeah. Uh, so you like how I framed this percentage did, yes, points as I opposed to raw it. points. Well, and I thought you were going to say the league, and I was like, eh, I think Boston creep no, north. No, no, no. For the West, <laughs> I'm focusing on. And we'll talk more about the Western hierarchy there in a yeah. second. Um, but it's so well-timed on all fronts. And I think you mentioned how there hasn't been a lot of fuel in the fire. I imagine part of that is because he's made it very publicly known all he wants is to compete and playing important yeah. games, right? And a lot of players say that. I actually truly believe him when yes, he says it, right? I'm, I'm sure he wants to have individual accolades and also make a lot of money, and that stuff will come, but he wants to play important games on a contending team. And so I think if this season had gone the way the previous couple had gone, maybe there would be a bit more fuel to the fire because it would just be tougher to sort of envision a realistic scenario in this timeline where he would get to do that in Vancouver. But now, through these first 40 or so games, it's looking increasingly likely that, regardless of your mileage on where they stack up against the other teams, at least they'll have a chance to play on that stage, right? Yes. And so I think that's a big reason why this subplot has taken that sort of backseat, but it's still sort of coming to the forefront now as these games go along and we don't get any sort of resolution yet. Yeah, I also think the the bridge deal last time, the way that that played out, uh, the the distraction when he finally did sign, having missed training camp uh, and then struggling, coming back from the wrist injury, but also I think with the pressure from from the contract. I mean, you know, I, I don't know exactly what's going on between his ears. Obviously, like he he's really reluctant to discuss these topics. He doesn't want to be asked about it. He really does want to focus. But you know, I I, I could understand why the hockey, especially right now, that he's surely having as much fun as he's ever had in his career, winning games like this and, and playing like aesthetically gorgeous hockey uh, with a with a winning team at the moment. You know, you can understand if that was where he just wanted his attention focused. And, and the last thing is, you know, there's a lot of players who might take a negotiating stance, like I don't want to negotiate in season and it would mean not a lot. But I do think with, with this guy, when he says something, you know, you kind of you kind of have to expect that he may be inflexible within that particular point of view, uh, even as, you know, it's become pretty apparent that the club's frustration, or, or maybe frustration's too harsh, but impatience to get this moving, to get some clarity, to have certainty on on a linchpin of their success uh, to this point in the year, 
um, you know, they definitely want to get things going in terms of having that sewn up well ahead of the expiry of his contract in, on July 1. Well, I think his career arc to date, and, you know, there's still so much runway here and sort of story to be told in his career, but the first however many seasons now, I just think it's it's so fascinating, right? And, and you've gotten a front row seat to it, but he arrives on the scene and this organization is sort of like lost at sea, right? The yeah. Cidians had just retired. They're yeah. looking for the next face of the franchise, the next person who's going to be the superstar. He arrived in Vancouver like a lightning bolt. Right. And then the late great David, uh, Jason Botchford labels him the alien, right? We mm-hmm. watch him finally play and he delivers on all that hype and it actually really does sort of, it seems almost sacrilegious to compare anyone to Paolo Datsuk, but you watch him play with like the kind of crafty, herky-jerky motions and how slick he is with the puck and yeah. The way he's able to like laser the pucks in top corner <laughs> while also lifting your stick, space. of course, yeah, right? It's incredible. It's 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 so uncanny. Now he has that wrist injury, right? And I I think you could see it based on all the rate stats in terms of like his willingness to shoot certainly came down, his efficiency doing so came down, and even when he came back, he missed a good chunk of that one season, which was a year for hell for them. Mm-hmm. Even when he came back, I think it took him a while to sort of, I think probably regain confidence in the fact that he wouldn't get re-injured every time he tried a wrist shot, right? And and it was really sad watching him during that time because I'd come to like appreciate just the the violent nature when he uncorks that shot sometimes, yep. and he seemed just so hesitant to do so. Um, and that coming back in his bag has been a big reason why we've seen this offensive explosion since last year, really, right? But I just kind of wanted to sort of work our way through that and document it sort of the profile, right? Because I'm, I'm trying to establish the the benchmarks here, I guess, for sure. what the next contract's gonna look like and what expectations of this player should be. I think generally people are pretty familiar with his game, certainly, but yeah. it's also such a unique statistical profile because and the reason why I highlighted that shot is, and I'm not sure for your your mileage on this, but he's already shown an ability to me. I'm always skeptical of saying a player can influence on ice shooting percentage for the most part because it's been such a rare quality that yep. we sometimes miss a sign after a short period of time but for the most part you look and really throughout his nhl career he's been able to do just that especially if you're willing to throw up the first 50 games of that 2020 i guess it was 2021 2022 campaign where, mm. where boudreau takes over halfway through you know and, and at the moment boudreau takes over his like on ice shooting percentage is four and a half percent right if you throw out that sample uh you know he's been one of the nhl's best shooting percentage drivers whether you want to attribute it to him or not you should but you know both both in terms of his individual conversion rate and his line mates when he's on the ice which makes sense because he's not just a shooter i mean he's a lethal shooter but right. he also sets up absolute backdoor tap-ins for guys and and you know you you see it you see it in the success of his line mates right you see it in you know, I think the number one guy in terms of shooting percentage in the in the league uh, over the last year and a half, like the last two seasons, has been Ilya Mikheyev, right? I mean, seconds, Patterson, thirds, Andre Kuzmenko. I mean, there is an, an ability to – I always used to think about it like this, Dim. I used to think about it like there are guys who can set the table and there are guys who can eat, hmm. you know? Yeah. Taves and Kane were always like sort of the perfect facsimile because they didn't often play together. But you know, Taves was a guy the Blackhawks could send out and he'd dominate the the shot counter, and then and then Kane could come out and and sort of do the eating. Right, he could put it away hmm. with the best of them. And you know, what's rare is the guy who can do both. What's rare is your Crosby type. What's rare is you know, not that Pedersen, Sidney Crosby, but that's 
the profile you're talking about. This is a guy who, you know, both influences where the game is played and then does way more damage than you'd expect him to do on a shot-by-shot basis uh, and helps his line mates do the same. I, you know, he's he's incredibly unique. And, and honestly, even zooming out without getting too nitty-gritty into the analytics of it. It's no, like, that's what we do here. Don't, worry, know, don't worry about doing that. Well, I, I, I know, but even zooming out just a little bit, right? This guy is 25 years old working on his second consecutive 100-point season. Mm-hmm. 25 or under 100-point center. There's no one else, right? The the only other guy is Jack Hughes, who's never actually hit 100 points, but he had 99 and 78 games yeah, last I'll, year, I'll give 45 it to him. and 32 this year. Yeah, I'll give it to him too. That, But that's it. Like, that's the company we're talking about. Right. 100-point, under-25-year-old center. There's two guys in the league. And, you know, that also sort of amplifies how interesting this is, right? The the Devils locked up Jack Hughes early. That was wise. The Canucks bridged Pedersen in, in the wake of the pandemic. And, you know, now I think we're going to, and we'll get into this as we go through the show, but now I, I do think we're going to get into nearly uncharted waters in terms of what his leverage looks like and what his valuation could be on this next deal. Well, just to demonstrate that, because I do have... We are going to get into the nitty-gritty of the analytics. I've got the numbers down here. So he's never dropped below 15% as a finisher himself. Mm-hmm. And his career average now is 17% on nearly 1,300 shots. Stamco's territory. Five-on-five on ice shooting percentage. 12% in 1920. Almost 14% in 2021. 76 in 21-22, which you mentioned, which was... The, uh, the sh- coming, wrist injury year, yeah. Coming back from injury and then the coaching change, right? Last year... 12.1% this year, 15.5. Now, obviously, we don't need to rehash why 15.5 this year is very high, but it does sort of demonstrate, like, when you look at that compared to even wildly skilled players who have a yeah, lot of even, individual even success, Crosby. even McDavid. Yeah. Like, if you think about when when they hired Woodcroft, right? I remember his on-ice shooting percentage at the time was, was in the tank, and it was like, he's playing really well. He's still producing his points, but the puck's just not really going in at the rate we've come to expect for everyone around him, even though he does all of that table setting and eating himself. Right. And so just the ability to sort of be almost immune to that when actually at full health does make him an alien or a unicorn in a way. Yeah, a completely singular difference maker. It's it's wild. And, you know, I, I do think this team's found some players that can amplify that a bit, right, that, that also can, can put it away. And then you've got one of the best table-setting skaters on the planet in Quinn Hughes. And and that's sort of partly what loading up the Canucks' top line enabled, right? For so much of this year, even though Pedersen's been crushing it, like his two most common line mates until last week were Ilya Mikheyev and Sam Lafferty, yep. right? Um, and Andre Kuzmenko, who's struggled immensely. Um, you know, the on a, a lot of self-matching with Quinn Hughes and JT Miller as sort of a five-man unit... Uh, against Tufts, leaving Pedersen to face secondary matchups without a ton of help. And, you know, you you load up that top line and then you roll them out a, as a as a Hughes, Heronic, Miller, Pedersen, Besser, five group of five, in, you know, against everybody. Like, don't even worry about who's on the ice against them. And, you know, Vancouver's five guys are going to be better than your five guys most nights. And it showed. Uh, you know, I think that was sort of the underrated part of why that deployment change unlocked something was it just massively upgraded the quality of teammate that Pedersen was spending 
his ice time with. It did, and I think that's an important part of contextualizing his production and his performance this year. I've got it down for he's played about 240 minutes with Quinn Hughes at 5-on-5 this season, yeah. and that's after sort of juicing that total more recently, right? Because yeah, for, for a while week. there, it was a very low percentage. In that time, they're scoring nearly six goals per hour yep. as a team with those two guys on the ice at 5-on-5, which is just unheard of right if you yeah. get into the four range and obviously over a larger sample like you talk like that stars top line that has been just running roughshod over the league at five on five the past couple of years they're around four and we're all marveling yes. at how good that is and now we're talking like 5.7 5.8 for these guys that's really impressive and 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 it, the eye test certainly matches as well right oh, like yeah, you, it's you, fun to watch you, and you watch broadcasts at intermissions talking about it and it's like yeah they're just moving the puck around you watch them swinging it even on sequences that don't result in a goal it, it almost looks like it's a power play, and with the team's power play regressing a little bit, at times it almost looks more lethal. Are on the man advantage? It does. Yeah, it does. There's, there's a menace to the way, to their game that is just a ton of fun to watch on a, on a game in game out basis. Yeah, it's wild. All right, do you wanna any other notes on Pedersen's season in particular this year that you wanted to highlight in watching him? Because we kind of run through the production, the stats, the context of how it's come. Because I want to talk a bit about his contract, how that ties into the team structure. And then I think even taking a step back and sort of viewing it through the lens of, of the league, right? Because we saw that Willie Nylander contract recently. Mm-hmm. And not to bring everything back to the Leafs, but I think it does open the door for an interesting conversation in terms of what the future holds, in terms of like salary structures for stars, what the the specifics of these contracts are going to look like as we head towards this new era of the NHL resembling the NBA a little bit more, right, in terms of mm. player empowerment, in terms of the salary cap going up, in terms of salary yeah. structures changing. Yeah, and I think we are. Yeah, let's uh, let's park it because I've got a, I've got a bunch of takes, and I do think this is wide ranging. This isn't just about the Canucks. It's not just about the Leafs and William Nylander. Like, I think we can fold in Miko Rantanen into this discussion. I think we can fold in Leon Dreisaitl into this discussion. I think there's a really strong class of star players who are expiring, you know, not even this summer, but the summer beyond that, uh, who could be impacted by where Pedersen's next deal comes in, uh, p- potentially in material ways. Uh, but yeah, I, I do think we're about to see this salary structure that we've grown far too comfortable with uh, effectively get detonated over the course of the next 18 months, and it's some of the league's best players who are going to do it. Okay. Look forward to that then. Let's take our break here. When we come back, we'll pick right back up with you. You're listening to the Hockey PDOcast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network. All right, we are back here on the Hockey PDOcast, joined by Thomas Rance. Tom, we started out the show talking about Alas Pedersen in particular. And I wanted to use that as a vehicle to just talking about the league at mm-hmm. large with regards to contracts with star players. I'll give you the floor here. You're the guest. And I know you you wrote about this, but you also you think about this quite a bit as much as I do. And we, and we talk about it off the record. Um, or not off the record, off but mic. Off, off mic. Yeah. Uh, although we could we should start recording it. Just little bite-sized uh, audio <laughs> notes that we post. Um, take it any, any direction you want here. Um, what do you think is sort of the most interesting component of this? Yeah. I mean... The most interesting component to me is for all the hand-wringing in the Vancouver market, and I don't know exactly what precipitated it, but the anxiety around Pedersen's situation, and this isn't media-driven, this is like 
from fans in the 650 inbox. This is from people in my Twitter mentions. This is from commenters at The Athletic. For some reason, the anxiety around Pedersen's contract status like turned up to like 7 out of 10, where, where it's sort of been simmering for much of the season this week. And, you know, in thinking about and unpacking it, which I did at length at a athletic column, it's called uh, How I Learned to Stop Worrying About Elias Pettersson Rumors, and, and you can go check that out. As I unpacked this and, and really sort of thought about it, it became clearer and clearer to me, looking big picture, that in some ways Pettersson's interests are best served by waiting, hmm. even as the club's best interests obviously are best served by having cost certainty with one of their most important players Um you know, and, and and a real like linchpin to the to their so far extremely successful short term retooling project. By waiting to this point, Pedersen has enhanced the level of information he has about like this team, the new coach, their ability to put a competitive team around him, uh, the environment. Certainly, you can imagine that if he had concerns about his ability to win in Vancouver. He's got to be feeling a lot more confident about that prospect going forward today than he would have four or five months ago. Uh, Then you add, and this is where I think it gets really interesting, the prospect of the cap going up to a projected 87.5 million and 90 plus the following summer. And, And I mean, all that's happened over the course of this year is that he's repeated his sterling form from a year ago and in fact built on it and... Um, built up even more leverage in, in these contract talks by sort of waiting. Uh, to me, that all seems like, you know, there's no need to speculate about disaster scenarios or what a guy wants. It's like, that just makes business sense, yeah, right? Like, fundamentally, his interests have been served as rational self-interest by waiting, uh, just as the team's rational self-interest would be best served if they had this deal locked up. And it, it sort of, we've, we've kind of reached a point here now and the Nylander contract, I think, is is an interesting um, footnote to this because that's a floor for Pedersen. Yeah. Right? That's a floor. Nylander's now the second highest paid winger in hockey, and that's a floor. Like, he's more productive. He plays a premium position. He's younger. There's no world where 11-5 on a long-term deal, um, you know, is a, is a penny less than what Pedersen, you know, demands is, like, within the – middle range of of his next deal but what could it look like what could it look like in the event that whether whether it's through the arbitration route or through accepting your qualifying offer if Pedersen decided that in fact what he's curious to do is and this is I'm just presenting this as an intellectual exercise but to approach the open market as a 26 year old unrestricted free agent potentially with two or three hundred point seasons at his back I mean what does that even look like, right? I, I think there's no contract in hockey that he couldn't demand more than in a world where it played out in that manner. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but uh, the reason why I've sort of brought in the Willie contract is because I remember at the time it happened, um, I think the details of it were still coming out while I was recording that day, so I, I was like thinking about it on the fly, but the thing I kept coming back to was I think as fans of the sport and people who cover it, we generally need to, I think like reframe or rewire the way we think about these contracts for star Mm -hmm. players. Right. Because oftentimes, and I think more from the fan perspective where we've become so accustomed to 
expecting players Star player to gets take twelve and a half. Max. Yeah. Well, that's that's on like the absolute Superstar, high right? end, right? Like we, we players leaving money on the table to help their teams win, and the cap is going up now. Well, that means our team's going to be able to improve because all of a sudden we have more money now to add other players. When in reality, that's going to be the case for some teams, especially that already have been proactive and got the timing down and took calculated bets like New Jersey did with a lot of their players. But for teams that didn't do that for a variety of reasons, I think this increase in cap space, it's going to be interesting to see how much of that is just sort of accounted for by stars taking a larger piece of the pie themselves, mm-hmm. right? Instead of being like, all right, well, the cap just went up $4 million. That means we can add a $4 million player. It actually being, well, our star player who's up for a new deal is actually just going to take a significant part of that, and we're going to have the same team. Just that right. player's going to make more. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing because no, every one of these work. guys are so intrinsic to the overall health of an organization. Like, you think about Elias Patterson. Not only is he their most impactful forward, he makes everyone around him better. He sells jerseys. He gets people to come to the rink. He drives conversation of of people like you and I who are on local radio here doing podcasts, talking about the team in a positive light, right? Like all of this stuff factors into it if you're thinking about it as an organization. And so every one of these guys is actually worth significantly more than we've become accustomed to. And as the money goes up and and the seat of the table sort of becomes more valuable, I'm curious to see how that dynamic shifts. Well, and we've lost in some ways, I think, a sense of proportion in part because there's been five years of or six years of stagnant cap growth, but also because, you know, the fact is, is that relatively speaking, the best players used to take up a larger, right? The, the you know, Zdeno Chara seven and a half, uh, back when the cap was $44 million when he signed as an unrestricted free agent with the Boston Bruins. I mean, that's a $14 million contract, proportionally speaking, today. Um, you know, and then and then you get things like people doing the, well, no one's won a cup with a guy who makes $11 million, right? And it's like, yeah, but they kind of have. Right? Yeah. They kind of have, proportionally speaking. Yeah. It, 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 it's silly, and it, it really hurts the people who are driving our interest who are giving like who are driving our interest and in driving the bottom line in this business i it doesn't make sense and it should change it should change and, and we're reaching a moment where i think it will like i really do you know again for me it's almost not this free agent class which i think is relatively yep. pedestrian but that that expiring in 2026 group where you've got crosby who'd be like middle range which is ridiculous to say Pedersen, if this plays out a certain way, but Rantanen, Dreisaitl, I mean, that to me, in a world where the cap's at $91 million, like, you know, that those are the deals that I really think, those are the players who I really think could, like, beat McDavid's cap number, um, beat, you know, McKinnon's cap number, beat Ma- the Matthews cap number. Like, those are, th- those are the deals where I could see you getting into, like, 15 or 16 um type million uh, million type valuations for for these players which by the way would still be value right would still be like efficient contracts even in today's system and and they should right like it, it, it's strange how you can almost become like villainized in a way because it's like oh like yeah it's you, ridiculous. you took too much too big of a share when in reality the way you should look at it i think is it's just becomes like i think you can win with players taking that percentage of the cap it just becomes so much more incumbent on the team then to not have 
unnecessary missteps on like overpaying guys who aren't worth that money, right? Correct. For whatever reason, let's say Willie Nylander, for example, because that was the most recent one. Let's say you think of him as a $10 million player, but he got 11 and a half, right? And I think think he's 11 and a half fair value. No problem, yeah. But let's say it's like, all right, that's a million and a half too much. You're willing to draw that line, but then when a replacement level player gets like two and a half million, the way someone like a David Camp did, for example, in my opinion, on that same team, obviously there were a contingent of the fan base that was upset with that at the time as well. But for the most part, it's it's easier, I guess, to People swallow that. It it's like, all right, well, we're not going to bet team because of this two and a half million, when in reality, it's like, it's the same thing. Honestly, this is a sort of a return. Like, we used to live in a world where deals became out of date, you know, because the and then there'd be new comparables. Like, I, I have this recollection of doing radio, I think it was in, like, Montreal, and after Blake Wheeler, who'd had two seasons at, like, you know, .85 points per game, like, he'd just become a star as as uh, once the Thrashers relocated to Winnipeg, and he'd signed for five years at $5.6 and people were losing their minds, right? And, like, people were like, that is a wild valuation for, you know, this this guy was cooking he was clearly the best player on that the team at that point and probably the best playmaking winger in hockey at that point and it blew my mind that people couldn't adjust to the fact that well as the cap goes up these guys are going to get more and in fact this is great value for a guy who's already shown you he's a first line talent who's productive as anything offensively for two years like 130 game sample i mean what should he be making right <laughs> like this is a first liner man so you know, I think we're going to get back to that world and we're going to see some contracts that I think people have sticker shock on and then within a year, they're going to be good value. Like, right away. Now, in terms of that, though... I think Nylander's a good example, actually. I think Nylander's going to be... We're going to look back at that deal in two years and be like, oh, that's totally fine value. That's my opinion on it. And not even for the first time in his career. <laughs> no. <laughs> God. Um, no, I, I, and listen, there's always going to be sort of cautionary tales or I guess calculated bets that Mm -hmm. didn't wind up working out where you bet on a player long term before there and then they don't wind up developing for whatever reason and it's like oh man we missed on that one a classic Pierre Dorian yeah exactly (laughs) um look at you working finding a way to 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 work in a Pierre Dorian reference even though he's not longer in our lives um but for the most part I think you and I still agree that pretty much every single time taking that long-term big swing on a second deal is the way to go. And I'm kind of curious, right? Because this whole concept of player empowerment is players who have the leverage getting what they feel like they rightfully deserve. And to do so, they need to get to unrestricted free agency as soon as they can while or their earning power close. is at highest. Or at right. least close. We're a year away and then the pre agency concept, all that, right? Or maybe even two years away, you can start all moving stuff in place. That goes completely against what the team would then want to accomplish, which is, all right, after three years of your ELC, sign an eight-year deal here on the dotted line. Right. And we'll give you more than you probably are based on what you've done so far. But, but two years from now, it'll be a steal for us. we're going to be laughing. Yeah. And so uh, I'm kind of curious for your take on, on how the, the machinations of that are going to develop here with this sort of cat and mouse game between team and player. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the idea of the bridge, you know, unless... In, in I mean, I, I I like one good bridge contract uh, in the last 10 years, and it's Braden Point, right? Mm. Because the 
Tampa Bay Lightning won two cups and made a third cup final <laughs> over the course of his three-year bridge. But, you know, I, I just I think it's so instructive to go back to that forward class because we talked at length about that forward class and what was the deal that was most criticized in that class of forwards. It was Mitch Marner. Mitch Marner's deal, people are still mad about it. But if you go and think about everyone else who was in that forward class other than Point and Marner, Lion A traded, Besser, you know, dealt with years of speculation about being traded. He's like the most traded player who's never been dealt. Right. Um, you know, you, 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 you sort of go down the list. I guess the Kyle Connor deal worked out well, but that was a long-term one. That was a six-year uh, a six-year deal. Um, you know, Kachuk is in that class. Well, how'd that la- work out for the team, yeah. right? The, the bridge contracts signed in that time frame, you know, for me anyway, should be all you need. Like, just look at the trajectory of those players since and tell me that you wouldn't rather have been the, the team, been Toronto. You'd rather be Toronto every time out. Um, you know, I, I do think some teams have figured this out and learned from it. And, you know, it was clear what New Jersey was doing when they signed Jack Hughes the way they did. Mm-hmm. Like, they were trying to recreate McKinnon. They knew it. Yeah. Everyone knew it. Um, I do think it's going to be incumbent on teams being disciplined about trying to get as much term as you can on those second contracts. And that makes sense for the players too, right? It's good business for the players too in that security is valuable in a collision sport. And, you know, if you're happy somewhere and you just want to make a lot of money and play hockey, like locking in, the like the delta of locking that in long term and then not dealing with every year personal uncertainty or the risk profile that hockey players take by not um having those having that the security of a guaranteed salary long term i mean you know it's not it's not massive i think where you get to this scenario and i think why it's so fascinating to me is you've got a player who's able to navigate the pressure and he's able to navigate that pressure in this market right which is rare in the extreme a singular individual super private no knows how to you know keep his business out of his business effectively and as he gets closer, right, not not just to restricted free agency, maybe even beyond, you know, I, I do think you're talking about a level of leverage that we've almost never seen. And and honestly, I think you can hear it reflected in the commentary from, like Jim Rutherford had an interview earlier this this year with uh, Dan Riccio and, and Satyar Shah on the uh, Canucks Central show on, on Sportsnet 650 where he was like, we'll do whatever term makes Elias most comfortable. <laughs> You know, I mean, gobsmacking stuff, the sort of stuff you very rarely hear from executives. It's, Rutherford, by the way, is being is both right and just being honest, right? Uh, not criticizing the commentary so much as I'm pointing out how different it is from what we usually hear. And that's because this situation is becoming increasingly unique and becoming increasingly unique in the in the player's favor. Um, are there lessons to draw from that, right? Do, do Can players, will players feel emboldened? To, to run this out and, and, and try to hit that, you know, sort of bigger ball, like that that bigger home run uh, a, as a result of seeing how the dynamic can shift if you're if you're elite and wait. I guess the thing, the the hammer that teams will always have to wield on, on players is that hockey is such a chaotic, violent yes. sport. Yep. And it's easy for us here to be like, all right, you should just – keep betting on yourself and take as short of term deals as possible That's until totally you can, different. until you can make a lot of money. No. And then you take one hit to the head and all of a sudden the entire perspective changes. Well, and, and, so. and it's worth noting, like, uh, you know, 
when he was looking for a second contract, Pedersen's preference was to get a longer deal. Yeah. So, you know, uh, Kachuk's preference was to get a longer deal, right? Like, for the most part, when we get to a to a point where a player's even in position or even in range for us to talk in this manner about them, it, it's usually been on the team. It's usually been a team-driven decision uh, to get to this point, at which point that balance rather promptly flips um, you know, which just brings me to one of my all-time favorite sayings, which is that they call it a bridge contract because it has to lead somewhere. Mm. I have heard you say that a few times. I, I say it all the time. Um, it's my favorite. Because uh, the, the I hate bridge contracts so much, Dim. <laughs> I, I do too. It's I one do. of my rules. Like, it's just like, oh, I hate it. Well, because the thing is, is like, if your argument, and obviously there's specific examples maybe where for whatever reason you actually do want to see more, right? Whether it's like, uh, wildly varying performance from one year to another or some sort of extenuating circumstance totally. where it's like, all right, I genuinely don't know. Yeah. But if whether you're... It's, whether it's basic maturity, because you're talking about making these bets on 21-year-old young men. I mean, you can understand why that would give anybody pause. No, certainly. But I think for the most part, if you're a team and you're saying, I prefer the bridge route because I'm unsure on how to value this player, you're sort of telling on yourself, right? It's like... Mm. You've had them. This isn't even someone who you're scouting and like trying to get intel on that's playing for another team. This is someone that you've had in your building for at least three years now and has been on your team and you've interacted with and watched on a day to day basis. And you still don't know whether you want to commit eight years down the line to them. Like, that's that would be alarming to me as a fan of a team if my team acknowledged that. So, I, I like you using in your building, by the way. That's very Robert Mason. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the, in the facilities. Not, not, yeah, no, I know. It's good. It's just in hockey, we, we everyone says in the organization, oh, okay. which I always think makes yeah. it sound like the mob. Right. Uh, whereas in football, it's in the building. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, very Robert Mazur. In like the it. building. Yeah, well, I was thinking of like the day in between games, right? The practice <laughs> facility, trying to trying to see how they Fair. they interact. No, I mean, it's incredibly fascinating. I think it's going to, you know, we talk about sort of how incumbent it's going to become to make smart decisions elsewhere uh, to account for this changing dynamic. I think if we haven't already, it's going to really um, shrink the available money for a certain type of player, right? Like I think we're going to see teams, smart teams are doing it the right way, identify their core, pay them accordingly for as long as they possibly can, as much money as that takes. And then essentially everything else is young players on ELCs who are playing supporting roles and you're sort of integrating into that process. Veterans who are looking for one final ride or trying to compete for a cup, right? And then if you have a smart cutting-edge organization who's looking at this stuff, sort of like reclamation projects and guys who right. are for the most part, right? Eliminate that luxury item of like going out in free agency and spending $4 million per year on a Garrett middle ball. six winger. Right. I think that's what's going to happen, right? Like, And I think we're going to see if we haven't already – it's going to become very cookie cutter in that way. Obviously there's always going to be organizations who don't view it that way and think they know what they're doing right and then try to act differently. But for the most part, I think we're going to see everything sort of normalize in and sort of shrink down and, and get, and get streamlined, I guess, in that capacity. I think you already are too. Like every team in the league now has made the gamble that if your goal is to fit as much talent as possible, under the salary cap when you get to the playoffs, right? That's that's kind of the goal at this point. Yep. Then if you have to play, you know, some local university or, or major junior goaltender as your backup for two games a year because one guy gets hurt 
isn't so hurt that they have to go on IR, can't go on LTI. Like that's the price of doing business. If you have to man short, if you have to play eleven seven, um, those are trade offs. Like Vegas has done this, Toronto has done this. Uh, you know, look at Tampa Bay has done this. Like look up and down at regular Florida has done this. Look at every contender, and they're they're actually whether or not their books are structured that way, their decisions in season are right. And mm. and so I think you're already seeing the vast majority of teams agree that like stars and scrubs is kind of how we're going to try and do it, and. It, it's sort of an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic because I I do think as cap grows and especially if you're right and I think you are that as as cap growth becomes the norm again, it's going to be star players soaking up the majority of that growth. Um, you know, if if that remains consistent, um, then then I do think you are going to see more uniformity in terms of the books, which will match the sort of decision making that we're already seeing. At a consensus level across the league right now, yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to. It. Okay, I guess before we get out of here, I, I I should close the conversation with this since we did start it using Elias Pettersson as a launching pad. I know you're the the author of the article. Why I don't worry. What's your what's your what would be your sort of calculated guess right now in terms of the resolution of this from from like a timeline to a yeah. term perspective? Yeah, I, I mean, I like. I'm really reluctant to fill this vacuum with speculation, and that's yes. what it would be. So I want to be clear okay. that I don't know. But the, you know, I, I would just say my lean when it comes to hockey players is always that they're more likely to stay put than not. Yeah. A- and when you really look at the mechanics of it, you know, it, it's not easy. That teams are so protected in and have so much good weaponry at their disposal um, in in keeping their own talent if they're really motivated to do so. That you know, I, I would wager that's far and away the most likely. Like, let me let me put it this way. Let me handicap it. Right, Pedersen remains on, on an extension after the season. I put it like minus one, uh, minus two hundred. Like, oh, I think, I think even be, here, I, I think there's like absolutely no reason to think that he's not. Yeah, like I, I would say that's the overwhelming favorite in, in terms my of qu- futures. Back. My question, will, though, I think it's much more interesting because I think like he's going to be on the team. Is what the term is mm. on that extension. Right. Just because he signs a contract doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be eight-year, eight or... I'm going to be here for the rest of my prime. And I'm very – because he's in a unique spot where he's going to be 26 one month at the next year, right? It's not even yeah. some of these extensions we've seen with Nylander or with Pasternak where – and Pasternak was a year younger, but where it's like 27, 28. All of a sudden, then you start getting into a different age range and different neighborhood, yeah, right? Different for 20, like 26, for all teams. of a sudden, that's – like you can bake in – a four-year deal yeah. and still cash in in a salary cap world that's like what's the cap going to be like in, in four years from now it's going to be incomparable compared to right now totally you, you, three years and you hit unrestricted free agency at 28 on your fourth contract I right and that's that's pretty unique so for sure there there's especially with what what, what does quinn hughes have left on his deal three years three. yeah yeah, that's uh, that's something I'd be pushing against. I think management <laughs> 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 try and stagger those a little bit. Yeah. Um, all right, Tom. Let's. Uh, do you have any parting thoughts on this? Do you think we kind of hit it all? I yeah, mean, obviously, it's it's such an interesting it, conversation. I think, like, just philosophically, in terms of like what's gonna what the future is gonna look like for the league. Well, I'm glad we had it in a way that was less about Pedersen and more about what it means big picture right. for the state of the league, where the league is going, and how it's going to evolve as we get back to some sense of business normalcy on on the other side of the player sort of debt being paid off. So 
I think that's a I think that's a fascinating approach, and it's a fascinating approach to take for a player who's got to be one of the five guys you just absolutely have to make time to see live if you can. Uh, the subtlety of his game, some of the things that he does on the ice, and especially when you know you've got him playing with um, Quinn Hughes and, and and JT Miller and and Hironic just felling guys with slap shots and and, and Besser picking spots. I mean, right now that five man unit that's the best show in hockey. I mean, he's just he's so cool because skill like you you see that that backdoor tap in assist he had in pittsburgh right yeah. that, that like the actual pass itself was just so beautiful but how much space he created on the move before the that yeah and then now the fact that he's put on a bunch of muscle into his mid-20s and yep. weight and like embraces and initiates contact and he creates space that way as well um i just think it's 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 a sight to behold and yeah. it's, so i co-sign that he's just so disciplined about going to dirty areas and he was when he was like 170 pounds right but now that he's you know six two and i mean he'd never reveal his actual weight but but closer to 200 for sure um it's a totally different proposition for for opponents and an awful lot of fun for canucks fans to watch i love it all right plug some stuff on the way out what do you want the listeners to check out oh man i'm gonna have so much trade deadline stuff at the athletic Tra- oh my god trade deadlines are on the trade corner deadlines, i guess that's like right six weeks away yeah canucks are gonna be buyers for the first time in 12 years there's gonna be so much trade deadline stuff at the athletic vancouver check that out and then canucks talk 650 uh and and on any podcast feed or podcast catcher you use um five shows a week Lots of fun with me and Jamie Dodd. Awesome, buddy. Well, it's good to have you back in town. We will certainly have you on again sh- shortly. I think we still actually have to do our East uh, Bear versus Bull case soon because we did that for the West before the break. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening to us. My only plugs are go join the Discord server. The invite link is in the show notes. Check out the YouTube channel. Uh, we put out uh, a show about Gabe Velarde and Nikolai Ehlers with Daryl Belfry this week. Keep that going next week as well. And that's all for today. So thank you for listening to the Hockey PDOcast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network.